And certainly, you know, some diagnoses, they, they really need structure, like students with autism need a lot of structure because they really crave it and will often put it in their own lives. Students with ADHD is sometimes the opposite. Because of their executive function issues, they, they have difficulty structuring things. They have difficulty structuring, okay, how am I going to practice? So what's going to happen? Like, I, this is my goal. How do I get there? Those things are very difficult for them to do. And so they really need a teacher to step in and say, here's what we're going to do with structure. It's not that they don't like structure. It's that that executive function piece doesn't let them, you know, put it in themselves. and welcome to All Keyed Up. Thanks so much for listening. Today, I spoke with Dr. Aaron Parks about teaching piano to students with ADHD. We covered a wide range of topics, and she gave a lot of really fantastic advice that I think everyone will find to be really helpful. Erin received her Bachelor of Music, Master of Arts in Musicology, and Graduate Certificate in Piano Pedagogy Research from the University of Ottawa. Erin holds a PhD in music education from McGill University, where she researched how to effectively train studio music teachers to work with students with autism. In 2012, Erin founded Lotus Center for Special Music Education, a charitable organization committed to providing access to music education for people with exceptionalities, where she currently serves as Director of Research and Professional Development. Recently, Erin launched the Lotus Center Institute for Professional Development in order to provide music educators with the skills and tools they need to help students with exceptionalities reach their full potential. In addition to her role at Lotus Center, Erin is an adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa, teaching courses and mentoring students in special music education. Erin presents at conferences and guest lectures throughout North America and internationally on teaching music to students with exceptionalities and other issues in music education. Now on to the interview. Erin Parks, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to talk about ADHD and working with students with ADHD. So before we talk about how it specifically applies to piano teaching, I want to talk about it in general. So a few kind of basic preliminary questions. So what is ADHD? How is it treated? And how is it different than ADD? Hmm. Well, and so a quick note too. at first, you know, this was kind of an explosion diagnosis a few years ago, right? It was like, it seemed like everybody had ADHD. Now the prevalence is about eight to 9%, but interestingly it's declining, but it's still a pretty big chunk of your students that are likely to have this diagnosis. And there are really kind of three key things that I think are important to know about ADHD. One is that it is biologically based. So there's this myth that it's like kids watch to play too many yeah, video games media. or yeah. eat too much <laughs> sugar or don't get enough exercise. And that's what, no, that's not the case. It's not to say that environmental factors can't play a role in how someone with ADHD functions, but that's the same for all of us, right? I mean, if you drank eight cups of coffee a day, you're going to probably behave differently than if you don't, right? Like those are... Those are just kind of truths for everybody, but there is a a neurological and a biological basis. And so for that reason, treatment often includes medication, but it doesn't have to, that's a personal choice, right? So different families will make different choices there, Um, but that's often a part of the treatment. And then other, other pieces can include things like 
like getting more activity and getting more exercise because one component is sort of a sensory component. And this is kind of a, a piece that there's more and more research into that, but it's kind of often overlooked. But it's hugely important for music teachers to understand, because really what it's all about is we all have what's called our optimal zone of arousal, which is where we function best, right? Like where we're like in the zone where we're focusing. And for some people, they need a lot of stimulation around them. Like if you're a person that works your best when you're in a busy cafe and everything's kind of, you know, hustling and bustling, and that's where you like to go with your laptop and work, then you need a lot of stimulation. If you're a person that needs to be at your house, at your desk, where it's quiet, then you're kind of a low arousal person. So we all have that. For people with ADHD, often their threshold is very high. So their zone is just up here where they need a lot of stimulation to function well. And that's just the way their nervous system is wired, right? It's it's not a it's, it's you know, not a plus or minus really, it's just the way that they are. And so things like doing a lot of activity can meet that and then they're not seeking it in sort of maladaptive ways. Um, and then the other really important piece there is executive function, which is really a, a brain function. It, it's all of the frontal lobe in the front of your brain. And it's kind of, it's your brain's executive, basically. Your brain's kind of CEO. So it's the part of your brain that tells the rest of your brain how to act on the information that it's taking in. So it organizes things, it helps you to plan ahead, time management, that kind of thing, organization. So that is impaired. So really kind of in a nutshell, ADHD is this sort of higher arousal, so needing lots of stimulation and also deficits in the executive function. So there's kind of those two big biological pieces to it. Hmm. Okay, so given all of what you just said there about kind of the um, different symptoms and how it's biological and how uh, you need a certain amount of stimulation and the executive function. I'm interested in what role music or piano lessons can play um, in not necessarily treating that, but in, I don't know, managing that or what the effect might be on some of these students. So still another big picture question before we get into the nuts and bolts of piano pedagogy as it applies to these students. Uh, sometimes I can even say for myself and my own experience during some of the really rowdy moments of these lessons with these students, um, which I think, as you say, is fueled by a need for kind of higher stimulation, the benefits of the lessons might not be as obvious as they would for a student who kind of just sits and obeys and gets gradually better over the course of the lesson. So can you speak a little bit to what some of the potential benefits are of music instruction specifically for these students? Yeah, and I think actually for me, looking through the lens that I look at working with these students all the time, I actually see it as the benefits are more. Mm -hmm. um, but it really depends on the type of instruction. So if you're really trying to stick with like traditional piano instruction and like they're sitting at the piano for half an hour and doing exactly what you tell them to do, well, that's probably not going yeah. to work that well. But music as a whole and, and music... Um, you know, not just listening to music, but music making, music practice, the process of music learning can be hugely beneficial for those two big reasons that I said, executive function and sensory stimulation. So for executive function, you know, it's, it's not that our students with ADHD, you know, they may not ever 
have the organization and the focus and the planning that our non-ADHD students have. But they're benefiting so much more by having practice developing those skills. And that's just so inherent in learning music, right? You have to focus and practice. So even if you know your typically developing student can focus for 30 minutes and all you can ever get your ADHD student to do is eight, but they started at two, right. and that's big gains, yeah. right? And the sensory piece is also really important. And this is again, where we get to like, you know, it can't be traditional lessons. They need to be moving around. And, and I, I know we'll talk about that more later, but that music is stimulating, right? And, and the great thing about music, and this is true for all students, but particularly students with autism, students with fetal alcohol spectrum, all different kinds of disorders that include a sensory component. The really great thing about music, two things actually, one is it's multi-sensory. So yes, it's an oral art, but there are visual components. There are certainly movement components. You know, we can use all sorts of kinesthetic concrete teaching tools, which are great. Um, and so there's all of that sort of multi-sensory immersion that can carry students beyond the 30 minute or 45 or half, you know, hour long lesson. And then there's also the executive function piece, you know, where they, they are really learning all of these skills that they're going to carry outside of their music lessons. So this music lesson, you know, we might feel like we're just teaching them music, but it really is a great microcosm of these other skills that probably, you know, we'll see continue outside of the lesson time. Hmm. Yeah, I really like that point about how music is multi-sensory and so it specifically impacts these students who have sensory challenges. And I want to talk about specifically, I forget exactly the phrase you use, kinesthetic. Uh, I mean, there was a phrase you used earlier in there that I really liked. And that's what I kind of want to focus on is this kinesthetic aspect to music and movement and how we can incorporate that in lessons. I think one thing that I did when I first started teaching, which was one of my big mistakes, is I kind of, with some of these students, would treat movement activities almost like kind of stickers in the sense of like, after a certain amount of focus, okay, let's have 20 seconds, you can do whatever, you know, um, just random sort of movement activities that weren't really tied into the rest of the lesson. So I'm really interested in kind of using this kinesthetic aspect in a way that's pedagogically beneficial. So do you have any examples of some kind of activities we might be able to do with these students when they grow restless that will play to their need for sensory stimulation and get the kinesthetic aspect of music involved, but also have musical benefits that tie into the rest of the lesson? Yeah, for sure. And that is a really important point because I do see that happen often. Um, though I will say using movement as a reward is much better, I think, than the other thing I've seen, which is iPads, which is not, you know, I am not in favor of using iPads as a reward. Um, but I, and I totally like, I mean, and I don't mean not using iPads in a pedagogical sense. I mean, like, you know, an hour of iPad or a minute of iPad play at the end of the hour lesson or something like that. That's non-pedagogical because I totally agree that everything we do in the lesson should have some sort of pedagogical purpose. And it's, you know, it's not that it can't be movement, but it's finding ways to link that movement to a goal that we have. And that it, it sometimes involves some creativity because it doesn't necessarily need to be repertoire that we're learning, right? It can be, um, you know, even things like we're working on, uh, I don't know, a difficult, a difficult pattern involving coordination. You know, sometimes there's something that's really hard to coordinate between the right and left hand. 
Um, even like if they're, you know, earlier in the lessons and they're doing like a waltz pattern. So the left hand is doing like one, two, three, when the right hand's doing something else, doing something like two-handed tapping is, you know, something a lot of teachers do, mm-hmm. but taking that a step further and doing like two-footed stomping yeah. or, you know, I do that like all that. the time and that works really well. That's right. And it's so simple, right? It's just kind of like pushing things a little bit further um than you maybe would but that's you know stomping is is really great movement and it's so grounding and that's the other piece is that you want to be careful with students with adhd that you don't get them like too hyped up with stimulation (laughs) because then it is sometimes hard to like bring it back down you know the idea is you want to give stimulation that will be you know, feeding their need for stimulation, but grounding at the same time so that two minutes later you can turn around and say, now let's bring it back to the piano, right? I mean, we don't want them just then running around the room for the rest of the lesson. So stomping is great. The other thing that is really great because it's movement and grounding is getting on your hands and knees on the floor. So I really like to use like a rollout piano um, or if you have, you know, any kind of like big floor, Um, staff or anything like that, that you can put on the floor and get down on the ground and either put, you know, I like to use, I just buy them at like a dollar store or something like plastic gemstones because they're very pretty and they give that sort of visual stimulation, but putting those on the keys on the rollout keyboard or the lines or spaces on the staff, you know, things that you would maybe traditionally do, like, you know, maybe you have a magnet board or something like that where you're spelling out notes, but doing it with more movement, moving around. Um, The other thing that I really like to use is putty, hand putty, and not just like Play-Doh that's soft, but like I have this putty that's like a therapist putty. So it's quite like dense, like you really have to work it. Um, But it's really good because it's so sensory and grounding. I mean, it just feels nice when I do workshops with teachers, I hand it around and they're like, oh yeah, this feels nice. And we all kind of want to play with it. But but again, to your point of we, we're not just playing with putty. Like, I mean, that's not pedagogically, you know, helping us at all, but to do finger plays or, you know, like if you were going to do finger plays, tapping on, on the table or whatever do it with the putty so we would kind of just squish the putty roll it out flatten it and then do our finger you know finger play in the putty so again it's not just a let's play with putty to just kind of like calm you down or something but let's incorporate these sort of you know these activities that we would be doing anyway like finger play or you know magnet boards or whatever let's just kind of bump them up a little bit so we're working more movement into them yeah, it also helps build uh, strong fingertips, I think, to play on the putty, which is so resistant. I've seen a lot of teachers, I think comparable to that, use those uh, poppets. Have you, you know what I'm talking about? Kind of for a I, I haven't not... tried it, but yes, okay. I've seen them. <laughs> it seems like a similar sort of um, way to get kind of the tactile stimulation aspect of piano, but off the actual piano itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those are some very good suggestions. So stomping kind of the rhythms, I guess, with your feet and uh, having kind of a floorboard of a, a piano that you can put gemstones on and putty. That's excellent. I've only done um, the first of those three. So that's I'm going to 
use some of those myself. Thank you for that. Um, so the, a lot of that is kind of the aspect of the lesson where we do play to their need for extra stimulation and we go off the piano. So now I want to talk a little bit about the parts of the lesson when we actually are on the piano working with them on repertoire or technical exercises or um, anything like that. So oftentimes in those lessons, the students might, and this is true for all students, but maybe in some cases, especially for students with ADHD, they might engage in behaviors that at least stereotypically piano teachers might want to discourage, like improvising while we're trying to talk or verbally interrupting. Um, so in situations where this happens, I'm wondering if there's a way that we can react to it that's a bit I don't know, more thoughtful than just shouting, stop or be quiet. <laughs> Uh, do you have any advice for what to do in those instances when students exhibit behaviors like that? Yeah, and I, I think this is really, for me, the most important piece because so often in, you know, teacher groups on Facebook or whatever, like almost every day, I see some teacher saying, I'm going to fire this student because they don't focus yeah, or whatever. And I've I'm seen those oh, posts no, too. Please yeah. don't, <laughs> you know, and I think it is because the teacher is not really seeing what's happening and they're seeing the student as lady lazy or disobedient or rude or whatever and i mean if i guess if you think your student's just being rude on or difficult on purpose that is frustrating so i think my approach to behavior is really always an empathy-based approach so trying to understand what that student is experiencing because i can tell you no student or person wants to just misbehave to be difficult, really. I mean, there's there's even when you're talking about things like oppositional defiant disorder, which is really characterized by just being oppositional and defiant, there's something underneath it, right? It's not because the person just wants to be difficult. That's always true. So I think that's the number one thing teachers need to remember. If they're observing these behaviors in their student, what's happening with the student? In the case of ADHD, it is those biological components, right? If if their you know, optimal zone is up here and you're keeping them steadily down here, they're gonna start to seek out their, the stimulation, right? And it's not, it's not out of disobedience, it's because their body is telling them they need to. It's just like if you were sitting in a really boring lecture or something and you start to doodle or something, right? You do that to keep your brain kind of engaged. Like we all do these little things to keep ourselves up there. The other piece with some of our students with ADHD is they might not have the filter. <laughs> like if you were in a lecture and you felt like getting up and walking around, you would just be like, well, I'm not going to do that because that would be you know, inappropriate or whatever. Some of our students with ADHD just do those things that we all might feel like doing, you know, because they don't have the impulse control. And again, we can't really fault them for that. Their brain is not giving them that impulse control. That's the executive function piece. Impulse control is a big part of it. And so yelling at them to stop it is not going to do anything. Right. And it doesn't foster good rapport, right? So I think there are two sort of aspects to look at. One is what do you do in that moment? Mm -hmm. And then the other is what are you going to do kind of longer term? Because obviously what you're doing is not, not working as well as it could if your student is disengaged and you're dealing with this issue all the time. I want to be really careful, though, that, you know, teachers don't feel like I'm saying you just have to do whatever st the student wants to do or is leading you like there has to be a balance between instructional control. And, you know, every teacher is going to have their own boundaries and rules in their classroom, and that's totally fine. 
Um, but also some student led in the sense that you're looking at your students needs and, you know, it's in the benefit of both you and your student that you're meeting those needs because that's how they're going to learn best. So in that moment, I think it's fine to, you know, acknowledge and acknowledge by saying to your student, I see you're having a hard time concentrating on this right now and reflect that back to them because they might not really realize and you know when we talked about ways that music lessons can be beneficial in other ways that that you know helping them to understand themselves and how they are in the learning process is a great benefit of one-on-one -on -one learning right it's such a privilege we have as piano teachers to work with our students week after week for years and years sometimes you know and really get to know them and help them grow in that way so certainly you can say that I see that you're having a hard time with this or um, you know if they're doing something like banging on the keys I see that you need a lot of stimulation right now or something like that and so then you can choose either to say let's leave this behind for a minute and go do something else and then we'll come back to it I would never advocate just abandon what you're doing like if you're doing it you know because you have a goal stick with it and you don't want your student to feel like you'll just abandon things if they start acting silly or something, right? Like you, right. you still want to get things done. So you can say, we're going to go stomp the rhythm or something and then come back to this. Or you can say, we're only going to work on this for two more minutes mm. and then we're going to go do this. Like, don't set it like, we're going to work on this until you get it and it's 30 minutes. Like they can't do that. <laughs> so, you know, set realistic expectations. But either way, you know, have an expectation that you're going to, you're going to continue working on what you want, but you can do one of those two things. But then the second piece, the long-term piece is to really watch when your student is becoming disengaged and try to plan ahead. Don't get to that point. Mm -hmm. So things like stomping or putty or, you know, crawling on the ground. The other one is a metronome. Met like, you know, I know a lot of students hate metronomes, but I find students with ADHD love them love them and i think it's because it's so structured and it's like it's loud <laughs> and so it's a lot of stimulation so you know doing something some sort of speed drill or something with a metronome you know it's like very exciting like a finger finger tapping you know um speed drill or something like that on the table even if you need to get away but working those things in ahead of time in your kind of long-term planning so that your students are staying in their optimal zone and staying engaged and you're not dealing with that disengagement both because then it's something you need to address in the lesson and it you know can be disruptive but also because your student and you as a teacher are going to feel the best about the lessons if there's like good vibes all the time right like you're never reaching that point where they're disengaged and you're getting frustrated and you know you want to do what you can to keep it feeling positive it might not all the time and that's okay but as much of the time as possible hmm. yeah so i want to talk about this long-term planning and how we can set up our lessons so that we ideally don't get to the point where the students are constantly banging and creating interruptions so again i'm always on this podcast talking about mistakes i made when i first started teaching but i had one student um like this and so my solution was okay we're going to change activities every two minutes and so it was two minutes of sight reading two minutes of rhythm two and it was like a hundred different things over the course of the lesson and i think what i learned the effect that that can have is as you were pointing out earlier in this interview there's an upper limit to how much stimulation they can take and so then they kind of felt disjointed by all of these different things that are happening. And so it's, you know, I guess you can have too much of a good thing. So do you have any suggestions of kind of 
how we can structure lessons where we can transition from one activity to another in a way that's kind of smooth and laid out and we have the right level of variety so that we're not, as you were saying earlier, just doing 30 minutes of sitting at the piano on one activity, but we're also not going so far in the opposite direction that it creates kind of a cognitive overload. Yeah, and I, one point I'll make about that too is it's students with ADHD are often very, very bright. So it is less likely to be cognitive, cognitive overload in the sense of too much thinking because they often really like to be engaged in, in things that they're thinking deeply about. And we often talk about students with ADHD actually hyper-focusing um, because they do get really into something that they're interested in. But certainly their executive function capacities can be overloaded. So their ability to focus and to pay attention, those things can become overloaded. So it, the more you can go towards the, the thinking engagement, um, the better, because that actually is a form of stimulation that can kind of keep things going without needing to change activities all the time. Structure is really important and, you know, for some students with different exceptionalities, more than typically developing students, but I try to just maintain pretty high structure in all my lessons. I think it's, um, you know, stabilizing for a lot of people and just kind of keeps things going smoothly. And for me as a teacher keeps me on track yeah. too. Like, you know, I, I like structure. Um, and certainly, you know, some diagnoses, they, they really need structure, like students with autism need a lot of structure because they really crave it and will often put it in their own lives. Students with ADHD is sometimes the opposite. Because of their executive function issues, they, they have difficulty structuring things. They have difficulty structuring, okay, how am I going to practice? So what's going to happen? Like, I, this is my goal. How do I get there? Those things are very difficult for them to do. And so they really need a teacher to step in and say, here's what we're going to do with structure. It's not that they don't like structure. It's that that executive function piece doesn't let them, you know, put it in themselves. And so it is important for us to, to do it. Certainly you don't need to change activities every two minutes all the time, but I will say it's very individual. So I can't say like, change every five to six minutes with all students with ADHD, well, it's different. And obviously if they're younger, you know, more so than if they're older, they've probably figured some stuff out and they've, you know, they've grown and developed. Um, and so there may be times in the lesson, like let's say a 30 minute lesson where you need to do that more, um, probably near the end. Um, whereas, you know, in the middle is kind of usually the sweet spot where you can stretch it a little bit longer. But the other thing that I like to do to have the structure really, really clear, but without it feeling disjointed is we'll work, we'll do a lot of activities around one repertoire piece. So we might only do, let's say two repertoire pieces in the lesson, but within each of those, you know, maybe we're, maybe it's a very strong auditory learner and we learn by, um, like for a lot of my students, I teach if they're strong auditory learners by singing the solfege notes. And that's kind of how we learn. So we'll sing the solfege, then we'll do a rhythm stomping, and then we'll play it as a duet where I play one hand, they play the other, and then they play both hands. So we're all still working on this piece, but we're kind of breaking it up. And then we'll do the same routine maybe for the next one. It might be slightly different because that piece has different needs in it. 
Um, but same kind of thing. And so there's these kind of big chunks in the structure, but they're broken up. And in each one, I'm working in a few different sensory things like, okay, we're getting up and moving and okay, we're singing now, or, you know, we're playing a duet. That's fun. <laughs> you know, like we're breaking it up in different ways. And then often at the end, we'll kind of do, you know, like a, a music game or something when their focus is maybe waning, but again, linked to some concept that I'm, that we're working on otherwise. Yeah, I think that's <clears throat> the crucial element of it is that I think what I learned over the course of my teaching is there's macro and micro ways of sort of changing the activity. And what you're describing, I think, is the way to go where you can have a lot of different activities, but all subsumed under the same banner. So you could be working on one piece and, as you say, working on the rhythms, uh, stomping that or something, but it's all tied to the same macro activity, as opposed to, I think, what I did where you just two minutes of improvising. OK, now for something completely different, now for something completely different. I also think what might help with these students is earlier in this interview, you were talking about if a student um, creates an interruption, you can s explain to them kind of how the next few minutes will work and say, OK, we're going to do two minutes more of this and then we'll switch activities. I think maybe I don't know if you'd advise kind of checking in with the student throughout the lesson to explain what we're doing now and what's about to happen could also make the structure more apparent and not make them feel kind of overwhelmed. Yeah, absolutely. And there are a couple of things you can do. And, you know, I find some students with ADHD, some need this and some don't. So don't feel you have to do it, but you certainly can use a visual schedule. And often I'll do it like I'll put it in, you know, like a plastic sheet so the student can check it off with like a dry oh, erase marker. And then I can just you, we can use it every week mm -hmm. because it, you want it to be pretty much the same every week. And and that that continuity, you know, is helpful too that they kind of see it and so usually eventually you can get rid of that because they just start to know okay this is what the structure is but if they need it you can just keep doing it forever that they're checking off what they're doing um there's also time like a timer i mean you could just use it on your phone we used to have like a big timer with like a big clock but you can just use your phone and for me i, I try not to be too tied to times associated with everything because i don't want it to be like we're just getting in the groove of something and then my students like it's been three minutes we're done yeah. and i'm like no we have to keep working on it <laughs> but if you are in one of those you know states where you've told them okay i want you to just keep working on it for two more minutes and then we're going to do something and they're kind of reluctant and they're humming and hawing about it that's where you could be like look i'm gonna set the timer but I always give the caveat, like, you can't run out the clock, like, you need to be working on it, or I will reset that clock. And they they know, you know, so that's where the kind of balance between, like, you know, student led, like, okay, you're not going to work on it for 10 more minutes, like maybe I would want it's two more, but you need to, like, give it your all for two minutes, if you think that your student could do that, you know, in that moment, which they usually can. Yeah. And earlier in this interview, we were talking about kind of benefits of music instruction beyond just getting better at the instrument. And I think this practice that you're describing of having a checklist of a schedule and always checking off what's going to come next, if it's the case that, as you said, unlike students with autism, students with ADHD really have trouble kind of managing tasks and with a routine. I assume this practice of every week going to a music lesson and having a schedule which gets checked off and moving through activities in this very systematic way would have far-ranging like benefits for these students beyond just getting better at piano. Yeah, absolutely. Because it is, you know, definitely, there, 
almost learning it by osmosis, right? Just experiencing that structure. Um, you kind of learn, learn structures by experiencing them. And, you know, even if we're not kind of teaching it purposefully, but they're just experiencing that every week, it's something that they're kind of internalizing. Right. So I want to talk about this idea of structure and how it would apply when we're not in the room. Um, because a lot of this interview, we've talked about how the teachers can really drive the structure through all of these different activities. But what about when the students are practicing and the teacher is not there to redirect and um, facilitate the same way they would during the lesson? Um, so forgetting for a moment the kind of small handful of students whose parents sit with them on every practice session and basically serve kind of as a teaching assistant, how do you advise teachers work with students with ADHD to make sure that they're set up for success when practicing? Yeah, and this is a really important question because this is where ADHD really comes into play it is that that kind of task initiation, like being at home and being like, I need to get up and practice and like actually doing it. You know, we like we all procrastinate sometimes, but for some people with ADHD, that can really be, you know, a, a big hindrance um, and also organizing their practice. And, you know, those are sort of the kind of easy things to target. The harder things are things like the self-assessment piece, like them playing and being like, did I get all those staccatos properly? Did I, you know, um, those things are part of it, part of it too. Um, and so those, you have to kind of practice practicing in the lesson. So don't ever just say to your student, go home and work on, you know, sharper staccatos or whatever, work on it with them. I mean, I think we most, we mostly do that, but really have them self-assess, ask them, what do you think? Did you do it? Nine times out of 10, they'll be like, yeah. And you'll be like, no, <laughs> <laughs> so let's try again. But that's important, right? Because if you didn't do that piece of asking that question, are they able to self-assess? Do they understand what I'm asking them to do? You'd send them home all week and just be like, and then the next week you'd be like, didn't you practice? I told you. And they'd be like, yeah, I did. And the issue isn't they didn't practice. It's they weren't able to assess whether they were doing it and adjust, right? Be like, oh, I'm not quite getting it. Let me, mm -hmm. let me try again. Then there's the kind of simpler things to do, like giving them a really, really, really detailed practice schedule, like really writing out, not just, you know, I, I have actually one of my students made notebooks for me for all my students because I was doing this all the time in his notebook that has like Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, like all the days and and it's a checklist. And I don't just write the piece, you know, it's really every single thing I want them to work on, they have to check off. I did that, I did that, I did that, I did that. And it's really not from, I don't give them stickers or, you know, I'm not gonna berate them if they didn't do it, it's for them. It's just to help them remember, okay, these are the things I need to work on. This is the order I need to work on things, you know, all of those pieces. All of that said, I think teachers, need to maybe adjust their expectations too and realize that 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 practice that initiation that that organization that especially the okay i want the piece to sound like this what are the steps i need to take to get there students with adhd have a very hard time with that with kind of working backwards so don't expect that of them don't be frustrated when they can't do those things it's not I mean, not to say maybe they're lazy, but it's probably not laziness. It's that they they can't do those things. So try to understand, even if you put those things in place, it might be difficult for them. 
I also think when we're writing out these detailed practice schedules, you were mentioning earlier in this interview about how maybe rather than thinking of lesson planning as sort of time directed and thinking we're going to do five minutes of this and five minutes of this, thinking of it as more goal directed. Um, so this is true, I think, with all students, but maybe particularly with students with ADHD, when we're working with them on a detailed practice schedule, making it goal based rather than saying work on this piece for five minutes. Because I think if you do it based on time, we might run into what you were talking about earlier, where the student thinks, oh, okay, I did it because all they did was just do it for five minutes, but who knows if they actually got better. So maybe spelling out in the detailed practice plan what the musical goals are would be helpful in managing their practicing. Absolutely. I never give time. I never say practice for 20 minutes or work on this for five minutes because, yeah, exactly that. That means nothing, really. <laughs> like that doesn't, you know, it doesn't ensure that any goals were met at all. You know, it could just be mindless repetition. It could be practicing with a whole lot of errors that you're now, you know, reinforcing. So definitely, you know, the the practice instructions should be goal-based for that reason, but also again going back to helping students to, you know, maybe develop skills that will carry outside of the lesson, right? Learning how to break down a big task like learning a whole piece into what do I need to do to make that happen? That's a really, really valuable skill. Yeah. Also for any teachers who are interested in doing a detailed sort of practice sheet to give to the student like this, um, I did one episode of this podcast with Nicola Canton of Vibrant Music Teaching, and she on her website has a um, practice sort of template that you can print out and use for your students if anyone would like just a quick plug. Um, before we go, do you have any other advice for piano teachers to consider when working with students ADHD with ADHD or any topic we didn't cover today that you feel is important? Yeah, well, I think a couple of things. One is, um, you know, I hear from teachers a lot. Well, the student doesn't have a diagnosis, so I'm just going to assume they're typically developing and and they're just lazy. And I think that please don't do that because you know there could be many reasons why they don't have a diagnosis maybe their parents are not not seeing all these things maybe they have their own reasons for not seeking a diagnosis maybe they just didn't tell you you know and then it's it's like for me i just look at each student as they come in and even some students i know wouldn't meet the kind of clinical criteria for adhd but they're kind of borderline you know and so I just do all these things with them. So I would say don't hinge it on a diagnosis. If you see that your student would benefit from these adaptations, just do it. The other thing is really keep in mind that there are plenty of adults that have an ADHD diagnosis as well. Um, that seems to kind of get lost sometimes, but um, you know, people kind of think of it as like a childhood disorder. And I think it's because it's much more um, pronounced in younger children as well, especially the hyperactivity. But those executive function issues can can really manifest still into adulthood. And that can be very challenging for a lot of teachers because they expect adults to have it all together, right? And it can still impact them as well. So, you know, just be mindful of that if you are a teacher that works with a lot of adults as well. It's less, like it's eight to nine percent of children and four to five percent of adults, but that's still a pretty big chunk. Okay, well, that's all very helpful advice. Thank you. So although we concentrated today on ADHD, this, of course, only represents a very small sliver of your overall knowledge base. Can you give your listeners a general sense of what you're up to now and where everyone can go to learn more about you? 
Mm-hmm. Um, so my my main work right now actually is in um, developing an institute for music music educators. Um, it's the first online um, professional development institute entirely devoted to special music education. So I'm really excited about it because when I started out, um, you know, working specifically with students with special needs, there wasn't much out there. Um, and so we offer webinars, um, free webinars, mini courses, and we're also launching intensive courses this fall um, that will provide a certification in special music education. And we look at a whole range of issues. I mean, I work with students with autism, Down syndrome, you know, mental health issues as well, trauma, all different kinds of um, really just students that need adaptive, adaptive approaches. Um, and really my passion is you know, to, to share that with other educators. We have a center, um, you know, where we do work with students like a music school. But for me, the biggest piece in increasing accessibility is giving teachers tools because then teachers can reach so many more students. So our institute is at institute.lotuscenter.net and there you can find um, all the courses. And also if you sign up for the mailing list, Every two weeks, we send out resources and PDFs and videos and stuff like that for music educators. Great. I will definitely put that link in the show notes. And just so our listeners understand, my understanding is that the Lotus Center, which you founded, was one of the first schools like that in North America, right? That really was a center for special education specifically with music. Yeah, it, it, it was. Um, they There was one in Finland that's been there for years. Um, it's called Resonari and it's fantastic. Um, and Berkeley College in Boston had a program there. Um, but this was, as to my knowledge, the first music education center entirely dedicated just to students with exceptionalities. Mm-hmm. Um, and importantly, also beyond just autism. You know, autism gets a lot of buzz, but there's a lot beyond autism, you know. And so we work with students with Down syndrome, cerebral palsy. Um, we have you know, actually three locations now in Ottawa, Canada. Um, and we have music lessons and camps and an after school program and all kinds of things. There's really a huge need for this. So any teachers that are kind of like thinking about this, even not that this is why you would do it, but even from a business perspective, you know, there's a huge market yeah, of people absolutely. looking for this. Um, and so, you know, if you have an interest in it, please don't feel like, well, I don't have the expertise or I don't have a degree in this. You know, if you have a heart for it and you're interested in it, take some courses, you know, read some articles or whatever, but just go ahead and do it. There's such a huge need. It sounds like there's a huge need. And I think all teachers can be very thankful that there are resources like the ones you're providing for teachers to make some of this learning process a little bit more manageable. So thanks for everything you do. And thank you for coming on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks to all of you for tuning in to All Keyed Up. I'll see you next time. 